I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective. I was naive enough to believe that I would be able to just present all of my proof of actual innocence, that they would investigate adequately, and so that I wouldn't be going to prison because I was a good person, I hadn't done anything wrong. In the back of your mind, you say, well, when we go to a hearing or we go to court, the truth will come out. The prosecution from day one knew I was innocent and let false testimony go uncorrected from the lower courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. You have someone with a badge with ultimate and, and really, in that moment, unchecked authority. Don't presume that people are guilty when you see them on TV because it may just be a dirty DA that is trying to rise upward. This is Wrongful Conviction. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. I'm very excited to have as our guest today an extraordinary man, a gentle giant of a person, actually, Lorenzo Johnson. 
Lorenzo Johnson's life changed on December 15, 1995. He and Corey Walker were charged with murdering Taraje Williams in Harrisburg. 22 years in prison for Lorenzo Johnson, a crime he says he didn't commit. And in 2012, a federal appeals court released him from prison, saying there was insufficient evidence. He went home to New York for five months, but had to go back to prison after the attorney general appealed. But for the first time in two decades, investigators have turned over the original police report, and it raises new questions. Johnson says it's key evidence that he should have had at his trial. For the first time, he found out police took fingerprints at the crime scene. He also learned Carla Brown, a key witness against him during his trial, was once labeled a suspect. On top of that, a new witness has come forward, saying he was with Johnson in New York the night of the murder. The Attorney General's office has been investigating the case all year. Now he walks free, the courts agreeing with him after a long battle. The judge accepted Johnson's no contest pleas to a lesser charge of third degree murder, and he now begins immediate parole. He's anxious to be free again. Lorenzo, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Lorenzo, your story is insane. I can say that, and you actually lived through it. You know, the more I've learned about you and your story, the more incredible I find it that you have this amazing spirit and this calm demeanor after having gone through this unimaginable nightmare. It's uh, crazy. It's crazy. So let, let's go back to the beginning. You're a New Yorker like me from Yonkers. Yonkers, born and raised. What was life growing up like in Yonkers? A nice life for young, because, you know, I, as a kid, I boxed for the police athletically. I did that for a couple of years. You know, I won a kid gloves, the Junior Olympics in New York. So you grew up boxing, living a pretty normal life. You weren't like a hoodlum or anything. You didn't get nah, in any real trouble. Nah. No violent felonies. No violent felonies, like, no. Some people say, well, if he got caught up in the system, he must have been a bad guy in the first place. No, you didn't have any kind of history like that whatsoever. And yet... You end up getting caught up in this vicious machine, this criminal justice machine. So this case was a murder case. Taraji Williams was killed outside a bar in Harrisburg. Did you have any knowledge of this? Did you know Taraji Williams? I know him from seeing him around, but didn't know him as far as like to call him a friend or anything like that. And I wasn't there when it happened. Like, I wasn't in the state, so I had no knowledge of what was going on or what took place. Oh, you were a couple hundred miles away in New York. Exactly. And one of the crazy things is that you could have proven, if you had access to proper attorneys, that you had driven back from New York because you had a receipt from the turnpike or even a camera, right? They had a camera. Still they shots. Still shot. If somebody yeah. would have just pulled that up, it would have proved that it was impossible for you to have committed this murder because... You know, you can't be in two places at one exactly. time. Exactly. But that's not what happened. I mean, I'm sure people are scratching their head like I'm scratching my head, saying, okay, but how could you get convicted of a crime when you weren't even in the same area code? I mean, zip code, nothing. You know, I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective. And the reason I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective, the day that the homicide took place, me and a group of friends came to New York. And we left Harrisburg, Pennsylvania between 3 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And we didn't come back until 4 or 5 in the morning. This murder took place at 12 o'clock midnight in Harrisburg. So when I came out at 11, 12 o'clock late on noon, that would be December 15th. And 
I got arrested for an unrelated charge that was later dismissed. But when I got arrested, I was told that you, you committed a murder last night. And I was like, I didn't know what you were talking about. I wasn't even in the state last night. And being that I was from New York, I was targeted, saying that, you know, I got a witness that's going to say it's you. And if this witness come down here and if he says it's you, you're going to jail. So me knowing I ain't do nothing, I said, well, you get your witness and let him see me. Now, at the time, there was a lot of New York guys down there. So when this witness came in, he said it wasn't him, referring to me. He said it wasn't him, but it was one of his friends. So him saying that is like a broad statement. Like if there's a lot of New York guys down there, you say one of my friends, it could be anybody. So to make a long story short, I went from the one that was supposed to commit a murder to the one who knows something about a murder. So on the aspect of wanting me to lie on somebody, they said, well, help us pin this murder on somebody. And I refused to cooperate with them. And when I refused to cooperate with them, they got high-headed with me. And I was supposed to be incarcerated for fleeing and loan from police. They gave me three counts of reckless endangerment on each cop and gave me a $500,000 cash bail. And they sent me to the county prison for that. So basically, they wanted to keep you where they could have leverage over you, right? Because while you're in jail, they're going to make you think, man, maybe I should play ball with these guys. Exactly. And that didn't take place. When I went to my uh, preliminary hearing, the case was dismissed. And, you know, I didn't do no running because I was innocent. So, like, two weeks later, two to three weeks later, they arrest me again. This time I was in the store. And they came and they locked me up. And I looked at one of the, the corrupt detectives. I said, you coming at me with this again? He said, no, it belongs to you now. And he had a fugitive warrant for me for conspiracy to commit murder. So at the time, you were working in a furniture store yeah. and just sort of going along with sort of a normal life, right? Yeah. No ideas of anything that could this could possibly happen to you, right? Never I mean, in a million years. But who would ever think that something like this could happen to you? And that's that's one of the reasons I'm so glad you're here. And and you haven't been out for that long. When did you get out? Two months, July 11th. Well, July 11th, 2017. 2017. And I'm telling you, I want everyone to understand that if this could happen to you, it could happen to just about anyone, right? Yes. And so now this cop has a vendetta against you because you wouldn't wrongfully identify somebody that, you know, they just wanted you to basically pull somebody out of Random the air person. and solve their problem. And then they're going to let you go. But then you're going to have to walk around living for the rest of your life with the idea that you did to somebody what actually happened to you. And you ain't that guy. Exactly. So now they come back to the store and they arrest you again. And now they're now it's getting real serious because now they're like, you're our guy. We decided Right. But you still know you're innocent. Yeah, it's like it's like unreal at first because you believe in the system. In the back of your mind you say, Well, when we go to a hearing or we go to court, the truth will come out. That's what innocent prisoners think in our heads, like when stuff like this happens. And in my situation, every time I went to court, something different would take place. Like, you know, one of my alibi witnesses uh, turn over and now they'd be a witness for the prosecution and I have no idea why did they, you know, change their statement. Right, because there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that you can't possibly and, know uh, about. And, you know, when I came to prison, I was illiterate education-wise. You know, I achieved my GD while I was in prison. I got college credits while I was in prison and I taught myself the law while I was in prison because later on in my case, I wound up representing myself for three years. 
So now things are getting really squirrely because there was a witness who actually had been a suspect, right, and should have actually probably been, I mean, somebody that the cops took a much closer look at. But for some reason, they decided to get off of her and put it all on you. And then there you would have somebody who's a very incentivized witness, right? I mean, she's trying to not go to prison for the rest of her life. From what I've read, it seems like that's a reasonable theory that she could have been the one who did it. So, yeah, it's not hard to draw a line to see, okay, well, why would she have said what she said about you? Well, she didn't want to take the blame herself. In my situation, I never had a statement from their chief witness. We was told that this witness never made a statement. So we never had access to this witness statement. We didn't get access to the witness statement until 18 and a half years later. And by this time, I was remanded back from my freedom from the United States Supreme Court. Right, and, that, and that's an important part of your story. One of the things that's so crazy, and crazy is a mild word for it, about your case is that, yeah, I mean, you had a Brady violation, and people who listen to the show know that the Brady violation means that the prosecution did not turn over evidence that they had that would have been favorable to your case, to the defense. And that's that's been outlawed by the Supreme Court since 1964. Not only did they not turn over exculpatory evidence, they actually lied about the existence of it in the first place. And that's really a vicious thing to do to somebody that they knew, they had every reason to believe was innocent, which was you. Once I come back and they turn over this withheld information, we finally found out that the prosecution from day one knew I was innocent and let false testimony go uncorrected from the lower courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. In the United States Supreme Court, in their decision to, to reinstate my conviction, they used this witness statement. And the prosecution not once told the United States Supreme Court, listen, what you're quoting right here from this witness ain't what this witness said in the statement. Wow. Then your situation gets crazier and crazier. You had been locked up for a total of how long by the time you were freed? Sixteen and a half years. Sixteen and a half years. It's now 2012. You come out into a world that's changed a lot, and you're trying to figure out, I'm sure, how to get back on your feet, get started again, having been through this incredible ordeal. But then you come out, and... An unbelievable thing happens, right? And this is, I mean, what we did to you shouldn't happen to anybody. But how is it possible that your conviction was overturned and the state had nothing better to do at the highest level, right? The attorney general of Pennsylvania decided, nope, I'm going after this guy again. We haven't punished this guy enough yet for something we know he didn't do. While we let the real murderer go free, we're now going to go and take this case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court only hears 1% of criminal cases that come before them, too. So the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, who, like I said, you would think would have bigger things to worry about than reconvicting an innocent man. But he decides, in a very vindictive and terrible move, to take your case to the Supreme Court. And... 
148 days after you were freed, the yeah. Supreme Court reinstates your conviction, and you got to go back to prison. Yeah, it was. I came home on January 18, 2012, and once I, you know, reintegrated with my family, I began working. And uh, Jeffrey Desovich, you know, I met him right before I came home, and his foundation helped me with reentry and stuff like that. And, you know, he was showing me, you know, he was bringing me with him on speaking engagements and things of that nature. And uh, we formed a nice bond. So one day I was at work, and i never forget, it was May 29th, 2012. And I worked for the same job I'm working for today. <laughs> I got a call between, like, 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning. The voice was, like, muffled, but I knew it was my lead attorney. But I couldn't understand nothing he said because he was crying on the phone. I, like, he's very emotional. But what I remember what he said, he said, your conviction's been reinstated. You're going to have to go back to prison. And, like, when he said I got numb because I was like, I know he's serious because he's crying on the phone. But, you know, I got numb because have to go back to prison is every Azonary worst nightmare. You know, especially after going through the ordeal I went through the first time. And now you got to go back and fight again. So, you know, all types of stuff is running through your head. But everything is not registering because you go numb at first. You're like, nah, this is not true. Like, it got to be something we could do to, you know, make them see, you know, I'm innocent. And the grounds that I was released on was under insufficient evidence. That's equivalent to a not guilty verdict. It bars a retrial. It's basically a judicial exoneration. And... There was no retrial. They had one appeal left, and that was in the United States Supreme Court. And my case was relisted three times, and which is odd because, you know, the Supreme Court really normally don't do that. So when my lawyer finished telling me what took place, the United States Supreme Court reinstated my conviction all in one day with a per-current decision and didn't allow my legal team to brief our arguments or oral argue our position, which is normal procedures for the United States Supreme Court when they take on a case. So, you know, once again, I'm numb to it at the fact that I'm at work. And I go I go drive down to Jeffrey Desivis Foundation in Midtown. I just drive down there, and I had my future wife meet me down there. And the lawyers and stuff was down there. And I went in there, and I was, I was just numb because they knew what took place, so I called before I got there. And I just sat there, and, you know, it was like I was in space somewhere for a little while. Like, I sat in the back room for a minute, and I was trying to gather myself because I was home for 148 days. No way in the world would I think that I would have to go back to prison for a crime I didn't commit for a second time. No, I mean, you've already been exonerated. It's it's just, it sounds like double jeopardy. It sounds like a nightmare that nobody who hasn't been through it could possibly understand. So let's talk for a minute about this crazy experience that you had as a person who had grown up, ironically, boxing in the police athletic league and everything else, and being sent to prison for life, right? That's a surreal enough experience. Two years in jail waiting for your trial and then going to a maximum security prison. And reading about your case, I know that you were in solitary confinement for extended periods of time. What was that like, and how did you survive that? How did you? I mean, how does your brain still even like not not melt down? And I know you're you're a guy. You were talking before yeah. about how you 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 maintain a positive attitude and you you don't carry around a bitterness and everything else. You got to explain how that's possible. It's very strenuous. I gotta say it. So that's 
solitary confinement was shattered. Anybody's psyche, you're in a cell 23 and 1, the light doesn't go off and stays on all day. The walls is all white, you know, you start to see things after a while. <laughs> a lot of people do do their time different. Me, myself, I was an avid reader and writer once I got my education. So the majority of the time that I'm in the cell, I'm either working out or writing, or reading some mail that I got. And I balance my day. A lot of people, you know, don't have that balance, and they don't have things to do. So they'll sit there, and then they'll start freaking out after a while. Or some guys, you know, they get hooked on medication, and they'll never be the same person once their family see them again. And this could go on for long periods of time. And I want to bring this to your attention. In Pennsylvania, it's not like New York where you could go see the parole board. A life sentence in Pennsylvania is a life sentence, natural life. There's no in-betweens. Right, so you literally have nothing to look forward to except for more of this torture. But how did you end up in solitary confinement in the first place? Being from New York, I got in a couple tussles when I first got there. Nothing major, but minor. And that led to me being sent to the RHU, restricted housing unit. Was this because people were picking a fight with you or trying to attack you? or It's very geographical over there. And then being from a state not of your own, from New York, is like, is on, is, is more of that. In the prison, unfortunately, a lot of times, like, if you let things go, you'll be preyed upon a lot. Right. You either have to stand up for yourself and then take the wrath of the authorities who are going to put you in this solitary confinement hole that you know you, you may never recover from. But at the same time, you don't really have any choice. You, at all. No. So how long were you in solitary confinement for? Ms. Fred, sometimes 90 days, almost six months. 90 days or six months is such a long time. When we think about 90 days on the outside, right, of doing anything, 90 days or, or six months in a tiny cell with white walls, like you said, and, and the fact that the light doesn't go off, like, <laughs> that's just torture. Like, that should be it's outlawed crazy. under the Geneva Convention. I mean, <laughs> that that's crazy. crazy. Like, why, crazy. why? Why is that necessary? I mean, and do you even have a sense of time in there? Do you have a clock? No. No clock. Basically, once you're there, you, you could tell the time with shift changing, recreation, what time they feed you the time the medication come on the block, so pretty much you know you become in tune with your environment. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Can you describe what a typical day is like in solitary confinement? Because it's just... It's unimaginable to me that I just, I can't. Well, just paint your bathroom white and sit inside of it. For 24 hours. And then you get a sense. Right. Except probably, I'm guessing, the, the typical person listening to their bathroom is probably nicer. Right. It at least has a couple of it things. Might be a little there. mini mansion compared to what's going on in there. Right. And it's interesting, too, and sort of scary to note that one of the judges ruling on your appeal dissented saying, this is a quote, I dissent from that portion of the majority's decision which upholds the conviction of Lorenzo Johnson for first-degree murder and criminal conspiracy. The judge continued by saying, I believe there is no direct evidence, nor can any be inferred, linking defendant Johnson to the death of Taraja Williams, nor any agreement with defendant Walker which resulted in Williams's death. So that judge is saying, you didn't do it. it- that judge is Burley Schiller, and that decision came out in 1998 from the Pennsylvania Superior Court. He's now the federal judge. That decision he made, that was the first judge that ever made a ruling on my insufficient evidence claim in my whole appeal process until the federal court released me on that ground. 
all the other judge that was on the panel with him, they, all of them went with the trial judge. They believe they they stuck with the trial judge decision, and it took from '98 to 2012 for them to come up with this decision from the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. So it's amazing that, in spite of the fact that it took two years for you to even get to trial, two years in a jail waiting for your trial, but then the trial, I mean, they didn't really take their time in convicting you, and the Supreme Court certainly didn't take its time in reversing your exoneration. They did it in one day. Yeah, my trial was only two and a half days. Two and a half days for a lifetime in prison. They felt four people. The victim family never got justice. My family suffered the injustice. Quay Walker family suffered the injustice. And society as a whole, you got innocent people in prison while the person who did it is on the street. In this case, there was not only one piece of exculpatory evidence that was withheld from your defense, right? There was a lot, and I'm going to go through the list, okay? <laughs> and you can jump in anytime you want. But this is some of the things that were not turned over, that should have been turned over, that are required to be turned over by the law. A discrediting statement to the police by the one eyewitness, Carla Brown, which you and your attorneys were told didn't exist, but it did, right? There was withholding there, and there was lying. Eight pages of the original police report were never turned over, and that police report investigating the murder showed that, among other things that it showed, was that Carla Brown was a suspect in the murder. So the only witness, <laughs> let's process this for a second, the only witness, the only thing that led to your conviction at all, because there was yeah. no physical evidence, yeah. someone who was stoned on crack, high on crack, who was a suspect in the murder, but they didn't bother to tell you guys. The first eight pages of my uh, discovery was missing, along with a couple hundred other pages. And once we did get the first eight pages, we saw that their witness was labeled a uh, suspect in the same homicide. Okay, that's that's deep. Yeah, it's deep. That's deep. But there's more. There were new statements by other witnesses that showed that Miss Brown... Carla Brown, the same person we're talking about, the only person that matters in this particular situation here, was an addict at the time of the murder and may have been involved herself, which gave her, of course, the ultimate incentive to cooperate with the police, right? Yeah, you you had two other witnesses that they had that put her in the alleyway when the shot was fired. Two of their witnesses said that they believe it was her in the alleyway with him. That strengthens their own case that, you know, that this person was a suspect. Whereas you have one witness against me, but you have three witnesses that's pointing the finger other way. And there were statements by witnesses who said that they did not see you there. Exactly. So I'm picturing the scales of justice right now, right? And and it seems like it's all tipped to one side, and that side is you go home while we go look for the person that did this. What happened was, like I told you earlier, Every step of my case, things started changing. Like, my alibi witness, one of them recanted the statement and turned into the motive witness for the case. My case was bound over because a jacket was supposed to be stolen from my co-defendant. Now, this is from the plenary hearing to trial. It was bound over because the deceased was supposed to have stolen a jacket from my co-defendant. Once my alibi witness recanted her statement... Now they became at trial over a drug debt. So it was a variance in the indictment because they changed the reason why it was bound over for court. 
and they brought a whole new theory in. Listening to this story sounds like something that could only happen in in a country where they really don't believe in a system of laws. It's hard when, like I said, when you go on a, against the prosecution, they got endless resources. It's like when you're innocent, it's like trying to breathe underwater. When you think they're done, they're not done. Something new comes up. and Well, and this is so crazy because they kept getting thrown more pieces of information, all of which led to the same conclusion, which is that you were innocent. And every time they got another one of these pieces of evidence, they had to come up with new lies in order to keep this case alive and in order to, to bury you in the way that they did. And it's crazy to me that everyone knows that you're not allowed to bribe a witness. You're not allowed to go to one of the witnesses and say, I'm going to give you 50 bucks. I'm going to give you $1,000, whatever it is. All I need is for you to say that I did blah, 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 or that I was in such a... You, you, you can't do that. That You go to prison for that. But the government is allowed to make the most incredible deal with a witness, which is that they can say, listen, with you know that little robbery thing you got or this other thing you got, we're going to make that disappear. All you got to do is participated in this murder. And that's another crazy thing, right? Nobody ever said that you shot the shot, right? No one ever said you were the murderer. It was like you were there. You got, I'm scratching my head again. You got sentenced to life in prison for allegedly being somewhere where a murder was committed. That whole thing is another outrage in this case. And there's still more to this, right? There's still the other thing, which was there was a statement by another man who knew that you were in New York at the time of the murder. And that guy, the cops managed to figure out how to get him not to come forward <laughs> by making up a story that you had snitched on him, right? Exactly. I mean, this was so much work, right? When these police officers could have been out catching a real rapist or, or solving a different kind of crime or whatever, the amount of time and effort that they had to put into framing you is absolutely bananas. I mean, and all of this goes back to the fact that you were convicted of a murder on the basis of one eyewitness who testified at trial, right? No physical evidence. And you had your alibis. And that was it. And that was enough to send you to prison for the rest of your life. When you tell the truth, you can stand on it. But when you tell a lie, it's like when you pour water on dirt, it's just going to turn to mud and you step on it, it's going to keep caving in and caving in and caving in. And this is what took place and it's still taking place. And it's terribly common what happened to you. I mean, as much as it's uncommon because in your case, you were wrongfully convicted twice. But what is not uncommon about your case is the incidence of prosecutorial suppression of exculpatory evidence, what we've been talking about, the Brady violation. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. 
I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I did want to ask you, too, one of the things, on top of all the other things, that is so disturbing to me personally about your case is the fact that after 22 years, two false convictions, all the lies and dirty tricks that the government could throw at you, 22 years behind bars, solitary confinement, all the deprivations that go with all that stuff. And then finally, they made you a deal that you really couldn't say no to, right? Which, which was that they made you plead down to a lesser charge in order to gain your freedom, right? It's a shame, and like, believe it or not, that's more. I'm more bitter about that than my time being incarcerated. Wow. 
And, you know, I'm bitter. I'm very bitter about that because basically my trust in the judicial system been shattered ever since the United States Supreme Court made that ruling against me in 2012. And uh, every time one of your appeal gets denied as an innocent prisoner and when you're serving the life sentence of big numbers, a part of your family member dies because they feel that they ain't never going to see you again. So my period of time, 22 years, is like, and then them getting a chance to be reunited with me after 16 and a half years, and then that's taken back from them, you can see your family's pain. And uh, how can I say it? You want to bring it to an end. And that's what really forced my hand because I could have went and won. But only thing is the cross appeal. Another three and a half to five years waiting. And you hoping that another judge don't do nothing crazy, which happened to me already. So, you know, it's like, should I put my faith back in them? Or should I just tuck and roll and go ahead and live my life? And as my family is like, the most part is like, me, myself as a man, I would rather be in prison right now than having a felony on my jacket for something I ain't do. But to stop my family's pain, I had to sacrifice myself. The prosecution, their whole thing is this. They want to maintain their conviction by any means. After all this evidence of, of police misconduct, prosecution misconduct, that same prosecutor got on the stand and said he felt strongly his evidence against me. Now, how is this possible? I didn't mysteriously come to court. <laughs> I'm down here because of misconduct and the judge awarded evidentiary hammers because of that. You know, I'm sitting back on the streets for a second time coming from a natural life sentence. I'm not here for good behavior. <laughs> I'm here because it was issues that had merit on them that I was innocent. But I was forced to take this plea bargain or gamble with the judicial system again. And how can I say, like, it's bittersweet. Like, a lot, like I, every day I wake up, I regret it. But at the same time, it's like people that have been in my shoes, they know what it is. It's easy for somebody to say what they would do, what they won't do. But, you know, like I said earlier, I went through every Azonary worst nightmare. You tell Azonary, you got to go back to prison and, re and do that time all over again. You're never getting out of prison unless it's in a box. You see how their whole life just changes. So, me, my passion, I've always been a speaker about wrongful convictions. But now, with these pleas, no innocent person should have to spend a second in jail, take a plea bargain of anything to get out of prison when they're innocent. And the prosecution knows this. Well, they have so much power. It's so, it's so tilted. And, and nobody can fault you for making the decision that you did when, you know, you were already framed twice why would you believe that the system's going to be fair the third time you know exactly and, and again i mean you're somebody who cares deeply about your family and your community you, you want to be out here for them what the hell are you going to do i mean it, it's hard for me to even hear this stuff um because yeah i don't even know i'm, I'm i don't even know what to say i mean it is is deep and, like, you know, emotions, it flared here and there with people in my position. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it, it doesn't stop me from doing what I got to do. I don't look at myself different. I'm just bitter that 
I had to go through that. And that's a big problem that's going on that's being swept under the rugs. There's a lot of innocent people that's being forced to take pleas. Yeah, because— Okay, I've been forced to take a no contest plea to maintain my innocence, but at the end of the day, I still got a felony on my jacket because this is a part of a plea deal. I didn't I didn't plead guilty, but you still got the conviction on me. Yeah, it's like that they got their last little— dig in you after you know they didn't, they didn't like you proving them wrong basically and they decided to give take one more shot at you and, and being is- vocal like like I told you in Pennsylvania you don't have that besides Mumia Abu Jamal you won't hear a prisoner in Pennsylvania with ties to social media the way I had ties to social media of them coming to see me on a visit in prison you know and things of that nature they you know you can't bring a camera into prison in Pennsylvania so the only, you know, social media and people from Fox and ABC that was coming to see me, they had to come see me with pen and paper. Right. But, you know, when they see stuff like they don't like that. And my whole thing is why you don't like it? Because they exploits what's going on. Yeah, exposes them for doing things that they've been getting away with for a long time that they can't get away with anymore. Or they're going to be they're going to be more Lorenzo Johnson's. In the it's world, a lot. And none of us want to see that. I'm one of many. I would like to get your advice because many people who listen to the show want to know what they could do. Here you are out for two months and already advocating and showing up and doing interviews like this and, you know, being an, a, an example and a role model. If somebody's listening right now and say, this is outrageous, I'm angry, I don't want to ever see something like this happen to somebody again, what, what would be off the top of your head? Let's just say law students. You know, law students they should review a wrongful conviction case just to get an idea of what's out there. And why I say that is, like, my trial trial attorney was fresh out of uh, school, and here it is, representing me on a a natural life sentence I was facing. was very green to what was going on, and everything literally flew over her head. Wrongful convictions need to be paid heavily attention to for the last three years, it had record numbers of exonerations. And a lot of people ask, well, why do guys spend so long in prison? Because they constantly fight you. The average innocent prisoner that's fortunate to be exonerated spends between 13 and a half to 15 years in prison. Wrongful convictions need to be fought not only inside the courtroom, but outside of the courtroom. As far as what you could do, your vote counts. Pay attention to when someone is exonerated, pay attention to why does district attorney still have their job after they was found liable of intensely convicting an innocent person. I really think that's such an important message for our audience. And you have a website too, right? What's your website? It's freelorenzojohnson.org. Lorenzo was talking earlier about how there were so many good people that got active and got involved. And it all starts with you, right? Because you had the energy and the sense and the, and the, and the you know, you educated yourself. You, you created basically a movement that ended up involving people from all 50 states and 53 countries who all wrote letters on your behalf. That's incredible. I mean, to be able to do that from inside a prison is nuts. I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment, and it must feel good to know that there's that many good people out there who are on uh, your side. It, it definitely gives you, you know, it gives you energy because you got people that take their time out of their day to write you. You got people that fight for you that you never saw before in your life. You know, you got people that's 
that come to your rallies, you know, and they demanding your release and they never met you before. Lorenzo, this has been an extraordinary experience and uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with, with me and the audience. I'm happy to be here. We have a tradition here at Wrongful Conviction, which is that I like to just turn it over to you in case there's anything else that you want to share, any thought at all about anything. I just turn the microphone over to you and, and let you go. I'm a, I'm a firm believer now that, you know, all I know is the fight injustice. So, you know, when I meet other Azonarees, such as Keon Anthony, Jeffrey Desovich, the Derek Hamiltons, uh, a lot of, of these people I never met before, but by reading the articles and things of that nature, but we all share the same thing that we was in prison for something we didn't do. And why I commend them is because they're out here fighting on the front line. And that's where I need to be at because when I was in prison for 22 years, it was so hard for me to get help. You know, I didn't get help until the end of of, of, of my my time span. Like, I had to represent myself for three years straight. So I say for people to get involved with your local innocent projects, you know, get involved with pro bono lawyers who fight for innocent prisoners. Watch who you elect in office. And if a district attorney has a check and pass, why put him in office? That's like the fox got a garden of hens, the hen house. No, and I'm glad you mentioned that. It's, it's so important to get out and vote in your local district attorney's races. Your vote means a lot because most people don't vote in those races. And you can make such a difference just by taking out the corrupt characters and replacing them with people who actually believe in the rule of law and believe in, in doing the right thing. Have you ever noticed, like, when you have a corrupt cop, you always see, oh, disgraced cop, such and such, such and such, he's blasted all over the place. But when you see a district attorney who was found liable for wrongfully convicting someone, the story goes away. They're still in the office. You don't hear anything else. Um, what else can I say, Lorenzo? I mean, this has really been an amazing experience to, to be with you. I'm so happy to see you here. I'm here. I'm, I'm here and I'll be back. <laughs> and and once again, it's FreeLorenzoJohnson.org. So it's FreeLorenzoJohnson.org. Go to the website, learn more about it. And thank you for listening to this extraordinary episode of Wrongful Conviction. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. <laughs> 